This podcast is an unedited excerpt from an MCLE program presented at MCLE's Conference Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, please see the MCLE website. So next is, is Jeanette, and um, so I, I drafted the agenda for this uh, for this um, uh, seminar back in the fall, maybe it was September or August, and I had a um, an agenda item that was winding down after COVID, post-COVID. So now that COVID's <laughs> over, um, uh, Jeanette, you can tell us what we're supposed to do. And I had to, <laughs> I had to add a parenthetical, hopefully, to our uh, to our uh, agenda item here. So hopefully, at some point, we'll we'll get past uh, COVID. But in the interim, Jeanette has some great uh, counsel for us on what we should be doing. Well, good morning, everyone. And as Max said, uh, you know, we, we thought we would be winding down COVID, um, but, you know, it's been nearly two years since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in many ways, things have improved. There's a better understanding of the science of how COVID-19 is transmitted, and doctors have a better grapple on treating COVID-19 patients. But in some ways, it feels like we're right back where we started. Um, you know, vaccines are widely available in the United States. And although they're widely available and there's evidence that the vaccines are effective, there's still a lot of resistance to receiving the vaccine. Some people for religious reasons, some people for political reasons, others for cultural reasons. And of course, there's still just general skepticism. In an attempt to protect unvaccinated workers from the risk of co contracting COVID-19 at work, and I would also say just to increase vaccination rates generally, on November 5th, OSHA issued an emergency temporary standard that was issued to protect unvaccinated employees of large employers from the risk of contracting COVID-19 by strongly encouraging vaccination. The standard was recently halted by the United States Supreme Court, and on Tuesday of this week, OSHA withdrew the ETS completely. But before I discuss the status of the ETS, I wanted to give a breakdown of some of the key components of the standard, because it's possible that even though OSHA withdrew the ETS, they will still try to push through a new iteration of the standard in some way. So pursuant to the, to the ETS, employers with at least 100 employees were required to either one, adopt a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy, or two, adopt a policy that required employees to either choose to get vaccinated or undergo weekly testing and wear a face covering at work. The ETS also required employers to provide employees with time off to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, and from the recovery for the vaccine for up to four hours of which must have been paid. The paid time off was in addition to any sick time or vacation time already provided by the employer. The employer was also required to provide a reasonable amount of, time of paid sick leave 
to employees to cover the side, of, side effects experienced following vaccination. Employers were also asked to obtain and preserve a record of every employee's vaccination status and employees were required to present proof of vaccination. The ETS went into great detail as to what types of proof were acceptable and what to do if an employee claimed that they were unable to obtain proof. Employers were also required to ensure that employees who are not fully vaccinated are tested for COVID-19 at least weekly and to keep results of those records of the test. The ETS itself did not require employees to pay for the test, but the ETS did note that payment may be required in some circumstances under collective bargaining agreements and state law. The ETS also required that if an employee tests positive for COVID-19, the employee must provide prompt notice to their employer and the employer must remove the employees from the workplace when they test positive for the virus, regardless of their vaccination status. The ETS did not require employees be given paid time off when they were removed, but keep in mind that paid time off could have been required under certain laws like the Massachusetts Earned Sick Time Law or other applicable state laws. Employers were also required to ensure that employees who are not fully vaccinated wear face coverings when indoors or occupying a vehicle with another person while working. And the ETS went into detail about which types of face coverings are and are not permissible and how they must be worn. Also, another key component of the ETS was that remote workers were counted for purposes of calculating an employer's workforce but they did not have to be vaccinated or tested if they worked remotely 100% of the time. So as you can see, the ETS was quite comprehensive and it had a lot of legal challenges to its validity pretty much immediately. Just one day after the ETS became effective, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit temporarily stayed enforcement of the ETS on a nationwide basis, pending further action by the court. In addition to the Fifth Circuit, other petitions were filed in various circuit courts, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the, for the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati was selected on a random draw to hear the many consolidated challenges to the ETS. Last month on December 17th, the Sixth Circuit lifted the Fifth Circuit stay, which effectively made employers want to get into compliance with the ETS. Most of the requirements of the ETS, such as having a written and disseminated policy and a roster uh, that would set forth the vaccination status of all the employees, required compliance by January 10th, 2022, and the requirement for showing proof of vaccination or a weekly negative test was set to become effective on February 9th, 2022. So literally hours after the Sixth Circuit <laughs> lifted the stay, an emergency appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was filed. On January 7th, the court heard oral arguments in the case 
National Federation of Independent Business versus the Department of Labor. And on January 13th, the court issued its decision, which blocked the ETS. The court found that the ETS exceeded OSHA's authority. Specifically, the court reasoned that COVID-19 is not an occupational hazard and that it is a day-to-day -day danger similar to crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. Put another way, the court did not agree with OSHA's attempt to remedy a public health crisis by setting forth an occupational standard. A few standout quotes from the decision were, quote, the regulation otherwise operates as a blunt instrument. It draws no distinction based on industry or risk of exposure to COVID-19. Thus, most lifeguards and linemen face the same regulations as do medics and meat packers. The secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. Another quote, which I think is worth uh, reading is, it is instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of a vast number of employees. The court held that plaintiffs were likely to succeed on the merits and OSHA exceeded its authority by imposing the requirement of 84 million Americans to become vaccinated. Because the court reinstated the preliminary injunction that prohibited OSHA from enforcing the ETS, the case actually moved back to the Sixth Circuit. However, after evaluating the court's decision on Tuesday of this week, OSHA decided to withdraw the, va the vaccination and testing ETS as an enforceable emergency temporary standard. And government lawyers filed a motion asking the federal appeals court to dismiss the pending legal challenge. Given the court's reasons for staying the injunction, the Sixth Circuit would have very likely ruled that the ETS was not valid. OSHA's decision to withdraw the ETS was very likely a strategic move because it avoids the possibility that the Sixth Circuit, or it could have been the Supreme Court, depending on what the Sixth Circuit decided, could issue a decision to restrict OSHA from future regulations regarding COVID-19. And I think that OSHA still wants room to continue to work on COVID-19 standards. And given the court's blocking of the ETS, they will probably work on a standard that is more catered to specific, to the hazards of uh, specific industries or work settings. If OSHA, in fact, pursues a permanent rule instead of the emergency temporary standard, they will not need to show, quote, grave danger, which is the standard under the emergency temporary standard. So now, you know, what does, what does this all really mean? Uh, now that the ETS has been blocked, of course, a lot of employers have been working on coming into compliance for the, the past couple of months. And as a result of the Supreme Court's decision and the Biden administration's withdrawal of the ETS, large private sector employers are no longer required to mandate that their workforce get vaccinated or test weekly, but many employers can still choose to have vaccination and testing policies. Practically speaking, many employers have been preparing to comply with the ETS for several months, 
and are in a good position to issue mandatory vaccination policies if they want to. Also, many employers with less than 100 employees have issued or are preparing to issue mandatory vaccination policies. And um, I've included a sample copy of a mandatory vaccination policy in the material. So I believe that's something that MCLE has, has already emailed to you. Now, if an employer is considering a mandatory vaccination policy, what are some of the things that they should put in the policy? Well, first, mandatory vaccination policies are legal in Massachusetts, but they are not legal in all states. So if your company has locations in multiple states, you'll want to check the applicable state law or local law to determine if a mandatory vaccination policy is legal as well as local and municipal requirements. Also, if your workforce is unionized, you will likely have to bargain about a, a mandatory vaccination policy um, or perhaps any type of vaccination policy with the union. So that's definitely something to keep in mind if you have a unionized workforce. And you also want to consider the impact of a mandatory vaccination policy on the morale um, and the ability to retain employees. If your company decides to instate a mandatory vaccination policy, uh, I'd like to go over just some of the key components of the policy. We've also, um, oh, I already mentioned that, we included a mandatory vaccination policy uh, in the material, so you could, you could pull it out and take a look um, if you'd like to. But one, you should make it clear on your policy what the purpose of the policy is. Is it the safety of the employees, the community, a customer base or client base? Um, you know, you'll definitely want to get buy-in from your employees. So you want to make sure you have a clearly established goal. And perhaps it's all four of those things that I just mentioned. You'll also want to outline the procedures for the policy like what is the deadline to actually get the vaccine? Um, what vaccines are employees actually allowed to get? If you have an employee who goes abroad and gets a, a vaccine abroad, is that something that's acceptable um, according to your policy? So there are a few things like that that you'll wanna consider. And then you'll also wanna think about what the acceptable uh, forms of proof of vaccination are. In Massachusetts, uh, the Baker administration recently established an electronic system where you're able to pull up your uh, proof of your vaccination card electronically. So that's also something to consider. And then, of course, one of the big things that you'll want to make sure you have in your mandatory vaccination policy um, are exemptions for religious and medical reasons. So if you are instituting a mandatory vaccination policy, you want to make sure that your policy clearly informs employees that they can request an exemption from the mandatory vaccination policy due to religious or medical reasons. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and state law require an employer to provide reasonable accommodations for employees who because of a disability or a sincerely held religious belief 
practice or observance cannot get vaccinated against COVID-19 unless providing an accommodation would pose an undue hardship on the operation of the employer's business. First, let's address uh, the exemption request on the basis of religion. Employees can request a reasonable accommodation from the mandatory vaccination requirement if it conflicts with sincerely held religious beliefs. So what are sincerely held religious beliefs? EEOC guidance and federal and state law tell us that the definition of religion is very broad and protects beliefs, practices, and observances, including religious beliefs, which you may not be familiar with. People who don't want, belong to traditional organized religions, such as Buddhism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, and Judaism, but who have sincerely held religious, ethical, or moral beliefs can seek accommodation. It is key to remember this because this means that just because you've never heard of a religion, it doesn't mean that the religious beliefs are not sincerely held. The definition of religion under Title VII protects non-traditional beliefs. Belief in God or gods is not necessary, and non-theistic beliefs can also be religious beliefs for purposes of Title VII. But also keep in mind that although the definition of religion is broad and protects beliefs, practices, and observance, observances, including religious beliefs that might be unfamiliar to you, social, political, or economic philosophies, as well as mere personal preferences, are not religious beliefs protected by law. When an employer is assessing someone's sincerely held religious beliefs, the employer should consider not just the nature of the activity, but the employee's motivation. The same practice might be engaged in by one person for religious beliefs, and by another person for purely secular reasons. Whether the practice is religious should therefore be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. For example, one employee might observe certain dietary restrictions for religious reasons, while another employee adheres to the very same dietary restrictions, but for health or environmental reasons. In that instance, the same practice in one case might be subject to reasonable accommodation under the law, because an employee engages in the practice for religious reasons. And in another case, the person might not be subject to reasonable accommodation because the practice is engaged in for purely secular reasons. For example, consider a Seventh-day Adventist employee who follows a vegetarian diet because she believes it is prescribed by the scripture. Her vegetarianism is a religious practice even though not all Seventh-day Adventists share this belief or follow this practice, and even though many individuals who adhere to a vegetarian diet do so purely for secular reasons. If an employer issues a mandatory vaccination policy, they should include an exemption request form. This form should be used for religious and medical exemption requests. For example, for an exemption request based on religious reasons, the exemption form will, will all allow the employee to describe how the COVID-19 vaccination would require them to forego their religious beliefs. 
We've also included a sample exemption request form in the materials that have been provided to you. And the exemption request form shows uh, the exemption for medical as well as religious reasons. Keep in mind though, that even though as an employer, you can ask the employee for this type of information, an employer ordinarily should assume that an employee's request for religious accommodation is based on sincerely held beliefs. However, if an employee requests a religious accommodation and you are aware of facts that provide an objective basis for questioning the nature um, of their request, you could ask for supporting documentation. So for example, you've issued a mandatory vaccination policy and you have an employee who's requested an exemption and they've basically done so and they haven't cited a medical reason, they haven't cited a, a, re a religious reason, maybe it's just a political reason or a personal reason, but, but clearly it's nothing that would squarely fall under the exemption. And you actually end up denying their exemption request. And then they come back to you and they submit a request um, based off of religion. That would be a reason why, you know, that could make you suspicious and that could be a legitimate reason to ask for more documentation um, for their request. Also, think about that when analyzing religious discrimination claims, courts frequently assess the motivation of the employer, not the actual beliefs of the individual alleging discrimination to determine if the employee was discriminated against because of their religion. So that's why, generally speaking, you want to take at face value uh, that the person does have sincerely held religious beliefs. Once an employee has requested an exemption, the employee should engage in the interactive dialogue to determine a reasonable accommodation. The analysis of determining the accommodation is done on a case-by-case -case basis, considering the employee's job duties and if the accommodation poses an undue hardship to the employer. For example, if it's determined that the employee, employee has sincerely held religious beliefs, the employer may not be able to reasonably accommodate the employee depending on their job duties. And this actually goes back to what Jackie was saying earlier about reasonable accommodations and making sure that you are performing a very individualized assessment. So for example, you could have one, you know, a large company and depending on the employee's position, you may or may not be able to provide a reasonable accommodation for that employee. Requests for medical exemptions follow a similar analysis as the request for religious exemptions. You should, along with the vaccination policy, provide a form that employees can fill out to request a medical exemption that states the grounds for the exemption. And the form should also include a healthcare provider certification in which the healthcare provider explains the medical reasons why the employee cannot get the COVID-19 vaccination. In the exemption request form that, um, that was emailed out to you, we also include the healthcare provider certification as well. 
And I think another thing to keep in mind with the medical exemptions is that, to my knowledge, um, there there haven't there aren't that many reasons as to why someone could um, really request a, an exemption um, based off of a medical reason. So that's something to really, when you're receiving the medical exemptions or your company is, it's okay to kind of scrutinize them and make sure it's, it's coming from a doctor that, that is legitimate. We've seen uh, medical exemption forms that have been coming from very questionable places, uh, doctors in Florida or, or other states that are, that are outside of Massachusetts. So it's okay to, as well, try to delve in more and get more information about that. And once the employee and the healthcare provider have filled out the form, and you've determined that the exemption request is legitimate, you must engage in an interactive dialogue with the employee to determine an appropriate accommodation. For example, as a reasonable accommodation, an unvaccinated employee entering the workplace in addition to wearing a face mask and getting periodic testing for COVID-19 may work at a social distance from coworkers or non-employees, work a modified shift, be given the opportunity to work remotely or accept reassignment. And one of the reasons we've been following this kind of uh, process is based off of Robinson's versus Children's Hospital, which is a presidential case that has basically said that when the employer has made efforts to really engage in the interactive dialogue and try their best to provide accommodation. And even though the they couldn't provide the accommodation from a liability standpoint, they were okay. And as with religious requests, the employer must consider all possible accommodations that do not pose an undue hardship on the employer. When determining if a reasonable accommodation poses an undue hardship, keep in mind that undue hardship can be both economic costs, such as lost business or having to hire additional employees, and non-economic costs, such as loosening a company's stress code. Also keep in mind that there's a different standard between the undue hardship analysis between accommodations for religious beliefs and reasonable accommodations due to disability or medical reasons. It is harder for an employer to show undue hardship for an employee who has requested an accommodation on the basis of disability or for a medical reason. Employers should thoroughly consider all reasonable accommodations, including working and job reassignments, rem remote working and job reassignments, before taking any adverse action against an employee. If a job reassignment is not possible, employers may also want to consider allowing the employee to resign voluntarily, which would allow them to reapply for a position if circumstances change. In any circumstance, it's important to document the interactive dialogue with the employee, which means all conversations that you have by phone, or even though we're in the middle of a pandemic, some of these conversations might be in person, you still wanna be able to follow up those conversations by email and recapping the conversation. Um, it's really important to show that as the employer, you have been engaging in an interactive dialogue.
So the last thing that I'm going to talk about is COVID-19 testing. So what if an employer has decided not to issue a mandatory vaccination policy, but still wants to set a standard for testing employees and still wants to set a standard for COVID-19 in the workplace? Because as we mentioned earlier, we think anytime we think it's winding down, it, it kind of seems to rev back up with various variants and whatnot that are going on. So there are employers that don't necessarily want to issue the mandatory vaccination policy, but they do still want to have some measure of protection within the workplace. So many employers, especially in industries that are public facing, have required employees to wear masks and submit to regular testing. A recurring question that employers have been asking is, if I require my employee to get tested, does my company have to pay for the test? Well, in December, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office issued guidance stating that if an employer has issued a policy that allows employees to get tested in lieu of vaccination, as long as the employer does not dictate when, where, and how the employee gets tested, it is unlikely that the employer will have to pay for the cost of the test. In Massachusetts, free testing is still widely available and a lot of the weights have calmed down since the number of uh, positive cases have started to decrease after the Omicron wave. And also the Biden administration, which I'm sure many of you have heard, has purchased 1 billion at-home rapid COVID-19 tests to give to Americans for free. And half a billion of those tests became available on January 19th. And they will be mailed to American households if you actually go online and, and order the test. And this is about four tests uh, per household. So that's another consideration as far as uh, testing. Also starting on January 15th, private insurance companies um, became required to begin to cover at-home COVID-19 tests for free. Health insurance plans are required to provide reimbursement for eight tests per month for each individual on the plan, regardless of whether the tests are bought all at once or at separate, separate times throughout the month. So although free testing is becoming more available, if your, if your company has locations in multiple states, I recommend checking local guidance and state law to determine if your company will have to pay for testing employees. Also, I wanted to just make a note about the guidance from the Massachusetts Attorney General in which the AG office guidance essentially said that employers don't have to pay for testing. Um, my caveat to that is that if you have an employee who has requested an accommodation um, based on disability, or a medical related reason and the accommodation, part of the accommodation is that they need to submit to COVID-19 testing. Uh, I, I would advise employers that they would likely, very likely um, have to pay for that test as a part of a reasonable accommodation, just like they would for any type of reasonable accommodation based off of disability or medical related reasons. And that's all I have for right now. I'm not sure if there are any questions.
Thank you very much for taking us through the ETS roller coaster <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that we've been dealing with. And I, I bet if we were to give Jackie some time, she would be able to tell a bunch of uh, uh, stories about taking clients through this as we have as well. Um, also, I, I guess I would just comment that, I mean, sincerely held religious beliefs has always been a part of what we've had to, to advise clients on, but it was kind of, the kind of thing that didn't come up that frequently. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge need to, to, uh, to evaluate um, whether an employee has a sincerely held relief, a religious belief, which just by its very nature is elusive. Um, so, yeah, so Jackie, do you, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I'm, um, and I'm like, like you guys working on these cases right now, I think the thing that's really hard to parse with some of these religious accommodations is, so the EEOC takes great pains to say religious accommodations are one thing, and you juxtapose that against political, social, personal preference, et cetera. And the political, the social, the personal preference, we don't have to accommodate that. We have to accommodate sincerely held religious beliefs. But as these are coming up and they um, are finding their way uh, to us, they're contrary to what they're, the church often is saying. So right. the saying, go ahead and get vaccinated. The employee is saying, but I disagree with my church on this. It is my belief that it is not okay to get this vaccine for a variety of reasons. And when you drill down, I, I, I don't know what you guys, I have a hard time. What's the difference between these, you know, these social, these philosophical, these political, personal beliefs and religion? I, I'm not comfortable doing doing that nuance. At least I haven't figured out a nice path. Um, the good news I do think, though, is sort of the, the, the lower threshold of these accommodations. So that we do sort of the, I don't, Jim, I'll say this to you, I'm not giving up that this is not a religious belief, but I, I, I'm doing a lot of, I don't know if it really is, but we're not going to challenge you there because the accommodation threshold is, is just lower. Yep. Um, though I will also highlight for folks, you know, just to be cautious about sort of how quickly you arrive at, I can't accommodate. Um, but, um, but, but long story short, I, I'm finding this really challenging, Max, largely because as you guys have highlighted, this is, it, it's not stuff we've routinely looked at. We've always had a doctor's note. They've all been disability and got a the doctor's note or get a different doctor's note or push a little bit on the doctor, but this is uh, doc, Dr. Joe Rogan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, ja Jackie, you're right. I mean, I look at it that there are two different steps into the analysis. So, you know, even if we've decided that, you know, you have sincerely held religious beliefs, it, it doesn't stop there. We still yeah. need to, no. based off of your job duties, can, can we even make an accommodation? So, if, right. for, you know, patient facing or if you're customer facing and yeah. as a business, if this isn't going to work, then, you know, unfortunately we, we can't accommodate. Right. And I'll make a, a you know, I, I do think a, a nod to chapter 151B here and some language coming out of some of the cases about, um, you know, our statute really wholly talks about undue hardship and uh, the, there's a couple cases that talk about the Compromise of public health and safety being undue hardship. I, I do think that those are things that 
we can really utilize where appropriate. Um, as, as Jeanette, you said, we're talking about customer facing, public facing, health workers, which we've already seen, um, utilizing that. I was going to just echo that. I, I, I agree. I think it's a bad idea for employers to engage on the terrain of what's a real religious belief and what isn't, um, especially when you have the undue hardship analysis, which is a much more objective-ish um, and certainly less fraught analysis um, and, and less likely to lead to, you know, or, or um, uh, effectuate bias or prejudice against particular religions or faiths or, or belief systems. Yeah. So I agree with everything that's been said there. I would imagine, Jim, that you're getting some interesting phone calls on, on, on this issue. Well, we are, and and you know, it's. I mean, I have my legal obligations. I have my personal obligations. It, you know, my personal values, and and I admit occasionally to some skepticism about some of these articulations for religious faith, and I have to keep myself and keep that skepticism at bay as well, because who am I to judge? But I think you know, I think where what I tell potential, well, what I tell potential clients or clients is, you know, I'm not going to, we're not going to really focus on that. What we're going to focus on uh, is, is the, can the employer legitimately say that it's an undue hardship to allow uh, an exemption for this vaccine? And, you know, that's, that's where we're going to spend the analysis and I'll be honest with employees about what their chances are in those circumstances. And there are probably a couple of different kinds of calls you get. One call would be, uh, hey, I, I've got this, this religious belief that doesn't permit me to take a vaccine like this. And the other kind of call is, I don't want to take the vaccine. What, what are my legal options? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, I'd be, uh, from the employer's side, sometimes we're thinking that it's more likely the, the, the latter. But, uh, but uh, that, that's, that's how you earn your keep. I refuse uh, to respond to that. Yeah, I figured you would. <laughs>